you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and to the 57th chapter. Uh, while you're turning there, I'd like to thank and bless God for three things. I'd like to thank and bless God for his work of grace uh, in bearing fruit here in the church of Mount Vernon Baptist Church. Uh, your church has been a tremendous help in ways that perhaps some of you would not even be aware of, but has been a tremendous help to our congregation in Winston-Salem, and indeed I bring greetings from the saints called Emmanuel Church. And uh, in so many ways, we have learned from you. We, when we planted the church, informally adopted what we called aunt and uncle congregations that we could uh, look to and talk to and receive help from, and Mount Vernon was one of those congregations, and so I thank God for that. Uh, secondly, I want to thank God to the pastors and shepherds of this church, the model that you are to me as a younger pastor, uh, but especially, as your pastor Aaron noted, uh, two of my brothers along with their wives have been members of this church, and it has been so rich and encouraging to see the way they have been shepherded in this congregation and how the Lord has used you as his provision for them in their sanctification and in their growth and how he's using you now in the lives of uh, my nieces over here. And so I bless God for that. And finally, I want to thank God for uh, your pastor, Aaron. He has been a good and faithful personal friend to me. And brother, I treasure our friendship. And uh, you have helped me greatly in my own ministry. And I thank you. Isaiah 57, we'll read verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Can I ask that we pray once more? Let's pray together. Our Father, in this hour now, we come before your word. Would you please speak to us? May you come by the power of your spirit to company with us and to disclose your heart for your people and your heart for those who are yet outside of Christ. We pray that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not you would make us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. On August 16th, 1977, a great king died. I'm, of course, referring to the king, and that is Elvis Presley. Throughout his career, Presley had won the hearts of untold millions as the so-called king of rock and roll. Uh, Elvis produced hundreds of songs and sold millions of records around the world. And sadly, in 1977, at the age of 42, he died of a heart attack that was likely, likely caused by an overdose of drugs. After Presley's death, a fan named Dennis Wise was interviewed by the Boston Globe. Uh, Wise had made a career as an Elvis impersonator and believes himself to be the greatest Elvis fan ever. Uh, he even had his face lifted by a plastic surgeon to resemble Elvis and had his hair contoured to match the style of his departed idol. In that interview with the Boston Globe, Dennis Wise said this, Yes, sir, Presley's been an idol of mine since I was five years old. I have every record he ever cut twice over. I have pictures in the thousands, magazines, pillows, t-shirts, figurines, cups, and plates. I have every book I can find about him, some even in Japanese and in Chinese. I even have leaves from the lawn of Graceland. That's Elvis's home. 
In school, when Elvis began to wear white boots, I bought white boots. The kids all called them fruit boots. I saw him in concert every opportunity that came my way. I tried to get close to him every time, but he was always surrounded by too many people. I never really saw him. I mean, really saw him. Sure, I went to concerts, but there was no contact. I even stood on the wall at Graceland over 12 hours once to get a glimpse of him, but I never could get close to him. I never knew him, and he never knew me. All the effort I put into following him, and I never could seem to get close. If you ask me, Dennis Wise's story is truly tragic. No part of his story more tragic than the words, I never knew him, and he never knew me. I never could seem to get close. Wise's statements about Elvis do not represent casual, lighthearted fandom. I think they more closely resemble those of a worshiper toward a god. And Wise's God was, in the end, inaccessible to him and ultimately unknowable by him. Now, perhaps if Wise knew somewhere that he could go to meet with Elvis, he could perhaps finally get to meet his icon. Perhaps if he could find a way to get past the crowds and the security people to, to, to pass through the walls of Graceland, he could have gotten close. But that never happened for Dennis Wise. Of course, Christians don't worship Elvis. We worship God. And indeed, our lives revolve around him. In fact, our lives derive their very meaning from him. Well, as Christians, it is worth asking how our experiences with God compare to Dennis Wise's experience with Elvis. See, Dennis Wise couldn't access his God. He couldn't really know him. He couldn't get close to him. Well, what about us? Can we access God? Can we truly know him and enter into relationship and fellowship with him? Our text this morning helps us answer these and other questions. So let me ask you, where is God? Where does God live? That's a question the smallest child here could ask. Maybe some of you children have asked that question before. Mommy, Daddy, where is God? Where does God live? It's a question a lot of people were asking on September 11th, 2001, and it's a question a lot of people are asking today, or at least over the last year or so. Where is God? How would you answer that question? We have two answers provided for us in our text this morning. Let me read it again, Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Where is God? God dwells in two places. He dwells, first of all, in the high and holy place. Secondly, he dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. We'll consider this passage under those two main headings, the two places where God dwells. First of all, consider with me that God dwells in the high and holy place. When theologians wish to describe God's existence above and separate from us, they use the term transcendence. This conveys the idea that God is beyond us, that he is so far beyond us that he is in the truest sense incomprehensible and unfathomable in his being, his power, and in his 
existence. There are dimensions to his being and to his nature that are beyond our ability to grasp or to know or to understand. His perfections and his attributes and his nature put him in a category of person altogether beyond our imminent frame of reference. The idea of the bigness of God, the greatness of God, the transcendence of God, the incomprehensibleness of God is a theme that runs through the entire Bible. Here are some classic texts that capture something of this idea. Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. You don't need to turn there. You can listen as I read. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Job chapter 11, verse 7, God asked Job, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? And the obvious answer is no. Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Ecclesiastes 3:11 He has made everything beautiful in its time also he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end Now you may say those are all Old Testament passages that's maybe the Old Testament picture of God but we don't see that so much carried over in the New Testament but if that is what you think you would be mistaken Romans 11 verses 33 through 36 Oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Do you feel the refrain of these and other like passages? God is great. God is beyond us. God is unfathomable. God is incomprehensible. Who among us dare approach the God of these texts? He is transcendent. He is beyond us. He is far greater than we can possibly know or understand. Now pause for a moment and reflect on how far the ideas of these texts are from our modern notions of worship. What part do the ideas of these texts, and our text in Isaiah 57, verse 15, what part do the ideas of these texts and other texts like them play in the thinking of the average 21st century churchgoer? Consider this quote from A.W. Tozer. Tozer penned these words 60 years ago in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and I think they're only more relevant now than they were 60 years ago. He says this, A condition has existed in the church for some years. It is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. 
This low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians today is the cause of a hundred lesser evils among us. For with our loss of the sense of the majesty of God has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience or know the meaning of the words, be still and know that I am God. These words, Tozer says, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this period of the 20th century. Well, what do you think? Does the shoe fit our modern notions of worship? Does this describe your experience of worship? Tozer is talking about the importance of maintaining a sense of the reality of God's transcendence in our worship. Do you know what he's talking about? We have this idea in our passage in Isaiah 57, 15. Where is God? Where can he be found? He is found in the place of his transcendent glory. Look again at Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. There are three main ideas that are presented in the first half of this verse. We learn, first of all, that God is high. Secondly, that God is eternal. And thirdly, that God is holy. Let's consider these three briefly. First of all, God is said to be high. He is high and lifted up. He dwells in the high place. Now, when that word high is used, it's not primarily a spatial term, right? When it, if, if I said to you, I, I highly esteem you, I hold you high in my estimation, what would I be saying? Well, I wouldn't be saying that you're taller than me, right? I would be saying that in my affections and in my esteem, you hold a place of honor and respect and status and dignity and worth. Similarly, if, if I said something uh, 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 rude to you or I acted in a way that was unbecoming and you said, Alex, that was so low of you, what you said or what you did, you wouldn't be saying, I'm shorter than you. You would be saying, that was, that was disrespectful, dishonorable, unbecoming. Well, similarly, when the word high is used here, it's not primarily designed to say that God occupies a spatial zone above our heads, though heaven is also often said to be above us. It means that he is high in the sense of honor and dignity and status and worth. God is high and lifted up. He dwells in the high place. He is at a distance from us in terms of rank and person. We lowly humans cannot approach his height. So God is said to be high. Secondly, he is said to be eternal. Or, or more specifically, God inhabits eternity. You see that there in verse 15? He inhabits eternity. Now, what could that mean? Eternity is connected to time, and as such, it's not a place exactly. How can it be said that God inhabits, he lives in, he dwells in, he inhabits eternity? How can it be said that God inhabits time? After all, what is time? What is eternity? Well, J. Oliver Buswell Jr., once president of Wheaton College, defined time and eternity in this way. Time is the mere abstract or ideational possibility of the before and after relationship in durational sequence, and eternity is simply infinite time. That is time so defined and extrapolated in both directions to infinity. So does that clear it up for you? <laughs> he inhabits eternity. 
I don't really know what that means. But it does quite seem to put him out of our reach, doesn't it? What could it mean? This God inhabits eternity. Who is this God? He must be so beyond our ability to grasp. He exists outside of space and time, but he dwells in eternity, inhabits eternity. This does seem to put God in the category of his transcendence. At least maybe it means that God himself is eternal, that he lives forever. It could mean also that he's the keeper of eternity. There is no eternal life found outside of him, and that is certainly true. These are perhaps some of the ideas in that phrase, God inhabits eternity. Nonetheless, the picture Isaiah is painting is of God as one who is high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. And now the third idea there, God is holy. He dwells in the high and holy place. His name is holy. This attribute of all three in our text is probably the most emphasized because it is most closely connected to God's identity. Isaiah says that his name is holy and that he dwells in the holy place. Holiness is an attribute of God. It is God's name. It is also where he dwells. And make no mistake, that dwelling place derives its holiness from God. All holiness is derivative of the God whose name is holy. Well, what does it mean that God is holy? In general, the term refers to a certain separateness. We normally speak of holiness in terms of a separateness from sin. And that's certainly part of the idea here. There is no sin in God, nothing but peerless, unalloyed moral purity. But there's more here. I think this holiness does not only convey the sinlessness of God, but also connotes his quality of separateness from us. God is not like us. He is holy and we are not. In fact, I've heard, I think it's Don Carson say that to say that God is holy is in essence to say that God is God. It's so connected to his being. And this quality of holiness that God possesses produces a certain separateness between us and God. God's holiness makes him distinct from us. We are not peers with God. Never forget that, brother, sister. God is not your peer. And part of the reason I think this is the main idea here, that God is separate from us by virtue of his holiness, is because of what was written earlier in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6, a very well-known passage. Can I ask you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 6? Keep your thumb in Isaiah 57. In Isaiah 6, there the prophet Isaiah is permitted to come in the presence of the Lord. In Isaiah 6, verse 1, we read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The idea here in this passage is surely that God is separate from us by virtue of his holiness. 
His holiness produces a certain quality of unapproachableness about him. In Isaiah 6, the seraphim can't even look at him. They use their wings to cover their faces. Isaiah himself, when he stands in the presence of the thrice holy God, says that he is undone and bows his face in the dirt and needs this mysterious coal of hot fire to touch his lips before he can even find his speech again. In Revelation, when the apostle John receives a similar vision, he falls down to the ground. No one dares to approach this God who possesses such holiness. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, that this God dwells in unapproachable light. He whom no one has ever seen or can see. No sinful man or woman could bear to be in the presence of the holiness of this great and transcendent God. Are you picking up on this theme? God is transcendent, God is above us, God is beyond us, God is high, eternal, holy, he is unapproachable, he is incomprehensible. Where is God, first of all, he dwells in the high and holy place. Now before moving to the next point, which I'll consider more briefly, I just want to mention two principles or implications in light of what we've been talking about. So two, you can think of them as points of application, implications, I'll say, of what we've considered so far. Number one, an impoverished view of God and his glory leads to an impoverished Christian faith. An impoverished view of God and his glory leads to an impoverished Christian faith. Tozer said this low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians today is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A low view of God will impoverish our view of Christian experience, of sanctification, of prayer, of ministry, of worship, and everything else because our view of God affects everything. Friends, why is it that the pursuit of holiness is so low in our scale of priorities? Why is vital godliness and piety held to be so cheap among Christians in our day? Why are our kingdom ambitions so small, our prayer lives so paltry, our Christian experience so meager, our theological and spiritual reflections so utterly infantilized? I contend that these maladies begin with a low view of God and his glory. An impoverished view of God and his glory leads to an impoverished Christian faith. There will never be revival in these areas of Christian life that I have mentioned, Christian life and faith, until there is a revival of a high view of God in all his glory and majesty and transcendence. Now, I am a younger pastor, and I don't have nearly the wisdom or the experience to make any sort of prophecies or predictions, but just a word to the pastors of this church. Among the many things the next generation needs to hear from the Bible, among the things you need to give to the next generation is a high view of God. There needs to be a recovery of the robust and biblical doctrine of God in our generation. People need to see a big God. They need to see God as he is. To, to reach people in the coming generation, the strategy and the approach is not, well, let's, let's lower God and make him as relatable as possible, and thereby we'll connect with this generation and make God to be somehow more relevant. Brothers, I urge you, 
Give to this generation and give to your flock. The doctrine of God as it's revealed in the Bible, a full 16 ounces to the pound. Give them a high view of God, high, lifted up, and holy. But I want to highlight a second principle that has to do more narrowly with worship, with what we're doing this morning, and it is this. Our worship, our worship will never rise higher than our view of God. Our worship will never rise higher than our view of God. Low views of God produce shallow worship. I'm not talking about the forms of worship now. I'm talking about what people bring from their hearts in spirit and truth. Lofty conceptions of God make for great and glorious worship. The higher our view of God, the greater our worship will be. When we see God as altogether awesome and great and majestic and holy and transcendent and eternal and glorious, only then will we worship God aright. How do you think the average 21st century church, excuse me, average 21st century Christian or church views the worship of God? It's not like this. The average Christian approaches the worship of God in a manner that is altogether casual, careless, and carefree. Everything in our culture, everything in our culture conditions us to be this way. Services are highly produced and carefully crafted to eliminate all dead space because heaven forbid we spend more than two seconds in reverential silence before God. That, of course, would be too awkward and uncomfortable. The premium is placed on slick production, charismatic performance, and the maximum possible comfort level for the attender. I ask you, do you think that Isaiah was comfortable in the presence of God? Do you think that the apostle John uh, 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 came in in a chummy, chipper sort of fashion, chomping on his gum, feeling that this was just going to be a really enjoyable, casual kind of experience? You see, the average attender in our day is eager to eat up that casual, careless, and carefree worship service. We bustle in with our lattes. We slide into our seats five minutes late. We enjoy the casual and light-hearted bonhomie of the whole event. And then we rate the music on the way home on a scale from one to 10. But whether or not the God of the Bible companied with us and condescended to meet with us by his Holy Spirit doesn't even enter the equation. As David Wells puts it, we are inadvertently advertising the fact that God rests only lightly upon the gathering. Well, what is the antidote? to this careless sacrilege misnamed a worship service. It is a larger view of the high and holy God in our text. And at this point, I want to encourage you. The worship of this church and the times that I have been here to worship God, it has been great and glorious. It has been informed by lofty thoughts of the great and transcendent holy God. That kind of worship, brothers and sisters, is glorious. It honors God. Again, I'm not talking about buildings. I'm not talking about what instruments you use. I'm talking about the people of God coming with glad hearts, humble hearts, 
to enter into communion with God as he fulfills his promise to come and meet when his people gather. Such worship, brothers and sisters, is a glorious thing. May God be pleased to give to each child of God week by week, Sunday by Sunday, such appointments and meetings with the true and living God as you gather to worship him. Our worship derives its character from its object. So the higher a view you have of the God you worship, the sweeter and the more glorious your worship will be. That's the first place where God dwells, the high and holy place. But now consider with me secondly, the second place where God dwells. God dwells, we read, with him or her who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Look again at verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also, and also, with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Would you have expected that to be the next line? After what we saw in Isaiah 6, after what we see in the way God begins this address in verse 15, describing his height and his eternal nature and his holiness, would you expect that the next line would be, oh, and there's somewhere else I live, somewhere else I dwell. I'm with contrite and lowly people. But that's what the text says. Wonder of wonders, this God who is high and lifted up, it's his pleasure, it's his will, it's his purpose to dwell with men and women and boys and girls who are of a contrite and lowly spirit. Here we want to ask two questions. What is a contrite and lowly spirit? And secondly, for what purpose does God dwell with such people? First of all, what is a contrite and lowly spirit? The Hebrew word for contrite literally means crushed. Crushed. And we should ask, crushed how or in what way? I think it's crushed by an awareness of sin, an awareness of weakness, an awareness of failure. Crushed by a sense of our own human frailty crushed by the difficult and challenging circumstances of life in a fallen world. A contrite and lowly spirit refers to one who has been broken by life and by sin and understands the need for daily repentance and daily dependence on God. This person understands their creatureliness, their finitude, their contingency, their dependence, their sinfulness, in the presence of a holy God. This is someone who feels the burdens of life and of sin under the curse and humbly looks to God for help and salvation. And the Bible says that God is near to such people. God dwells with such people. Parallel passage we have in Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2. There we read, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Children, listen to me. Do you want to have God look to you in compassion and grace and in love? This is the one to whom I will look. 
He who is of a humble and contrite spirit, and he who trembles at my word. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I hadn't sung that song, not what my hands have done since I was a little boy. What a beautiful song. We come to God with our achievements and our religious attainments and things we think we could offer up to him or different sacrifices and all of this. God will despise those things. But the sacrifice of a broken and contrite spirit. God's not going to despise that. You come to God broken and repentant and contrite. He won't turn you away. I think this is exactly what Jesus had in mind in the Sermon on the Mount. That first section we refer to as the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Jesus is talking about those who have been broken by an awareness of their sin and by the hardships of life, and they have recognized their spiritual poverty, their needs as people living in a sin-cursed world. They are poor in spirit. And Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will live with God forever. These are people who come to God through Christ in their spiritual poverty. It is the posture captured in the words of that great hymn, Rock of Ages. Do you sing that song here? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the posture of one who's poor in spirit. Or as God has it in Isaiah 57, 15, one who has a contrite and lowly spirit. Our God says God dwells with such people. God is near to the broken, to those who have an awareness of their need. Remember James 4, 6, God resists the proud. But friends, he gives grace to the humble. These are the contrite and lowly with whom God dwells. But a second question under this second point we should ask is for what purpose does God dwell with such people? Well, it's not just that they're so nice and have wonderful personalities and God just couldn't bear to be without them. And he doesn't dwell with them. He doesn't come to them in wrath and in judgment. No, God draws near to them, men and women of a broken contrite spirit because he wants to revive them. He wants to give life to the dead, healing to the broken. He wants to meet people in a place of humility, and he wants to reveal himself to such people and share relationship with such people because he wants to revive them and restore them and bring them into a place of happy fellowship with him. Brothers and sisters, he doesn't want us to assume the posture of humility and penitence so that he can stick his boot in our faces and push us down. He calls us to meet him there because it's there that he discloses his mercy to us. It's there that he comes and lifts us up and gives us new life. It's there that the high and holy God dwells with man. He comes to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the spirit 
of the contrite. But let me now ask this question. I know I said I had two questions, but I got one more. Have you wondered how is it that the high and holy God can dwell with the contrite and the lowly? You see that tension in the passage? Like, like how is it that this God who's so transcendent and so great, Isaiah had to bury his face in the dirt as did John, how is it that this God could dwell with creatures of the dust, with worms like us? Or you could think of David's question, what is man? As you are mindful of him, God, why? Why would you dwell? How could you dwell with such people? But you know, don't you? If you're a Christian, you know. God can only do this because of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that the transcendent and holy God of the universe has come near to sinful men and women in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. The dwelling place of God will be with man through the person of God's own son, Jesus Christ, through his incarnation and death and resurrection by which he becomes a savior for sinners and invites men and women aware of their sin and their need to hold fast to him in repentance and faith. The ultimate way in which God has expressed his desire to be near to broken and contrite people is through the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistakes. God is transcendent, high, lofty, eternal, and holy, but this great and transcendent God has drawn near to men and women in the person of his dear son. I can dwell with God through the person of Jesus Christ. I can have all my sins forgiven and live in perfect fellowship with him in paradise forever through what our Lord has done. God's transcendence and his imminence, that is his nearness, are most clearly seen in the person of Christ. And that person, the Lord Jesus, became a sympathetic high priest who was touched. He was touched, as the old King James has it, with the feeling of our infirmities. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, and he lives to reconcile God and man through his work on the cross. Jesus is the one, God's only begotten son, who makes it possible for God to dwell with contrite people. Because through his work of redemption and reconciliation on the cross, he secures the forgiveness of sins and brings us into right relationship with God. For all those here, who are broken and contrite, for all who are truly penitent, truly repentant, and who have faith in the Lord Jesus, this is his promise, they will have life. God will dwell with them. He will revive the spirit of the lowly. They will be reconciled to God and drawn into the sweetest fellowship with him. God will dwell with them. In closing... I'd like to give briefly three points of application. Three points of application in light of our exposition of Isaiah 57, 15. Number one, let us labor to give these truths about God 
namely that God is transcendent and that God is imminent. Let us labor to give these truths about God proper weight in our Christian experience. Let us labor to give these truths about God proper weight in our Christian experience. Brothers and sisters, let us not be guilty of thinking that God is so high that a relationship with him is impossible. That would be a denial of the gospel. God communicates his love for us and his genuine desire to company with us and fellowship with us in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. There is a sense in which the whole movement of the Bible is toward God dwelling with his reconciled creatures. God dwelling with sinful man redeemed by the blood of Christ in perfect fellowship and harmony in paradise forever. No, friends, the Bible's notions of God's transcendence and height are not meant to communicate to you he's not interested in a relationship with you. God's glory and majesty are not meant to scare you away. My friend, God wants to draw you into relationship with him. That is what God wants. He invites you to be reconciled to him through repentance and faith in Christ, that he might dwell with you forever. That is his will. But let us not be guilty now of the opposite danger. Thinking that God is so close and so near that he's just our buddy, that he's just our peer and nothing more. Jesus Christ, who is our dearest friend and Savior, is also the eternal Son of God. And our God, who is imminent in the person of Christ, is also the thrice holy God who dwells in the high and holy place. Listen, the gospel's design is not to bring about low thoughts of God. All the wonder of the good news that God dwells with man in Jesus, that's not given to us to produce low thoughts of God. Rather, the effect should be more like this, that we see God in who he is. We see him as high and lifted up and as transcendent, and we're aware of the distance and the separation that exists by virtue of his holiness, and we come like, like worms into his presence, aware of our sin and our need, and then he shows us grace and mercy and we become aware of the condescension of God. That's the wonder of the gospel. That God who dwells in the high and holy place has condescended to company with man through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is meant to give us high thoughts of God and grand thoughts of his condescension and the distance he scaled to make us his. Let us seek to maintain a healthy view of God's transcendence and majesty. And may this view of his glory cause us to be so thankful for his nearness in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, who is our savior. A second point of application to you here who are Christians. Let me encourage you in your Christian walk, in your quiet time, when you gather here on Sundays to worship God, Pursue a lowly and contrite posture before the Lord. Pursue it. Pursue it. Love lowliness and contrition. Because it's there that God is pleased to meet you. You want to know God? You want to walk with God? You want to have a secret history with God? 
pursue humility. Pursue contrition before the Lord. Pursue a lowly posture before God. And his promise is that God will come. He'll meet with you. He'll open up his heart to you. And he will revive you. He'll give you life. And you'll know communion with him. It's the opposite of what the world would teach you, right? The lowly and the humble aren't loved or desired. They do not attract. Don't be a humble because the humble don't win or achieve anything. The world does not promote humility and meekness and contrition. The world says you should be self-sufficient. Live on your own stock. Stand on your own self-worth and your own self-achievements. The whole Frank Sinatra, I did it my way thing. The world promotes a sort of rugged and prideful independence, perfect isolation, blessed independence, self-sufficiency. But that is not the Christian view. Christianity commends humility and lowliness because that's where God meets people. My friend, God only dwells in two places. He dwells in the high and holy place. And I assure you, you're not going to reach his height. You can't build a stairway to heaven. You can't build a tower of Babel or something like that. You're not going to get up there to where he is. But he dwells in a second place. It's with humble and contrite people who come to him naked, in need of dress, helpless, in need of grace. And there is no middle ground. You cannot try to stand between that place of humility and contrition and the high and holy place coming to God with your achievements and your test scores and your resume and your CV and your religious attainments and achievements and try to meet him there. You won't meet him. He won't draw near to you. Oh, but brokenness, friends, contrition, repentance, humility. God gives grace to the humble. He dwells with those who are lowly and contrite in heart. Thirdly and finally, and this is primarily for anyone here, you're a visitor, you're a child perhaps, or you've been coming to this church for some months, but you don't identify yet as a Christian. You haven't closed with Christ. You haven't put your faith and trust in him. Here's, here's my message to you in the message of this passage. You can know God you can know God. You are not in the position of Dennis Wise. Sinful men and women can be redeemed and changed and forgiven and brought into right relationship with the high and holy God. My friend, this room is filled with testimonies of people who can tell you of how God treated them when, he came, when, the, when we came to him in repentance and in faith. He received us, and he changed us, and he transformed us, and he brought us into relationship with him. You can know God. Through Jesus Christ, God will once again dwell with man in perfect fellowship and paradise forever. You can know the Lord. We're not like Dennis Wise. He could never meet his hero. Always out of his reach. I never knew him. And he never knew me. I never could get close. Of course, for many who do actually get the opportunity to meet their icons, the experience can be cripplingly disillusioning. Somehow they never live up to the hype, right? 
I wonder if you've seen the hit Netflix series, The Crown. Uh, the Crown tracks the history of the English monarchy under Queen Elizabeth uh, II. The monarchs have been, the monarchy part of me has been in the headlines for a lot of reasons over the last year, most recently because Prince Philip, the wife of Queen Elizabeth, passed away uh, just earlier this week. If you haven't watched the show, I commend the whole series to you, but there's one episode in particular I'd encourage you to watch. It's season three, episode seven. Uh, the title is Moon Dust. And it tracks Prince Philip, who we're remembering this week, uh, who, who, who is watching with rapt attention uh, the events leading up to the famous Apollo 11 moon landing in 1969. He's got his little TV there in Buckingham Palace, and he's, he's just fascinated at these astronauts and what they're doing. And they, they come to occupy this place of mythic status in his world. He used to be a pilot himself, and he's just taken by, by what they're doing and the idea that man could actually land on the moon. And the, the moon landing is completed, and they come home, and, and, and Prince Philip, who at this point is having something of a midlife crisis, he comes to learn that now the astronauts are going on tour. I think it's Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, and um, Collins, Michael Collins maybe? The astronauts who landed on the moon, they're going to go on tour, and they have a scheduled visit to Buckingham Palace. They wanted to meet the queen and Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. And Prince Philip is just overawed at this prospect to meet his icons, his heroes. And he requests a private interview with them. He's given only 15 minutes. And he meets with the three young astronauts, and he's utterly disappointed, just utterly disillusioned. They are juvenile, they are uh, childish, lighthearted. He senses nothing of profundity and depth in these men at all, and they have these little colds that keep sneezing and coughing, and he's just utterly disillusioned by this meeting. And he's at dinner later with his wife. He says this, I didn't know what I was thinking, but I expected them to be giants, gods, in reality, they were just three little men, pale-faced with colds. The lack of flair or imagination, the total absence of originality or spontaneity, and entirely anticlimactic when you meet them in person. I mean, imagine they go all the way to the moon, stay healthy, but one trip to London nearly kills them. <laughs> they delivered as astronauts. They disappointed as human beings. My friends, God never disillusions. He will never disillusion you. Knowing God is like entering some kind of mansion with each chamber opening up to more and more rooms as you come to know him more and more, more fully. He never disillusions. The church can be disillusioning. People can be disillusioning. I'll just speak to you heart to heart, okay? I have known a lot of disillusionment in my life. Parents can be disillusioning. I've been disillusioned by churches. I've been disillusioned by pastors. I am, I bless God, in the happiest marriage under heaven. Marriage can be disillusioning. Parenting, career, friendships, people are disillusioning. 
My friend, God never disillusions. He never lets us down. With God, the truth is always better than the rumor. It just gets brighter and brighter the closer you get. God will never disappoint you, my friend. I implore you, I appeal to you through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Come in all contrition and humility, naming your sin and confessing your sin to him. And in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I promise you, he will receive you. And he will draw you into communion with the living God. And you will enjoy it here in this life in part and then throughout all eternity as we pass through more and more rooms of the perfection and beauty of God. He dwells in the high and holy place. And also, with any man, woman, boy, or girl, who is of a humble and contrite spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, when we look at the world and we behold the sinfulness of the earth, and when we look inward, and see the darkness and sorrow and sin in our own hearts. We would not have anticipated that you, the peerless and holy and perfect God, would so condescend to draw us into relationship with you. But you've done it, Father. You have done it in sending your own dear son, in sending him to the cross to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that sinners like us, Father, could be in relationship with you. How we praise you. Please, Lord, convince us afresh of the gospel. Convince us afresh of your willingness to meet with and to dwell with people who come to you in all humility and contrition. May every soul here have that experience of coming naked and finding dress in Jesus Christ coming like with a cup empty and having it filled with blessed mercy and grace and compassion from your hand. Father, how we thank you for what you have wrought in Jesus Christ, being more of us here in this room into the experience of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.